Describing idolatry and how to tell if it's crept into your life. Here's Pastor Ed Taylor. Idolatry is what you run to to give you the sense of peace and comfort that can only come from God. Where do you run when you're mad? Where do you run when you're anxious and worried? If you run to anything or anyone other than God, that's become an idol in your life, a replacement of the one true God. This is amazing grace. This is It may surprise you to hear that idolatry is still a problem, but it is. And its subtleties are why many turn away, even run away from the Lord. And while it's a problem, it's not without a remedy, as we'll hear on today's Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor. Today and tomorrow, we'll learn of its cause and cure from Hebrews chapter 7. Here's Pastor Ed with today's message, Saved to the Uttermost. We study this interesting character by the name of Melchizedek, Melchizedek. And the problem with Melchizedek often is that people spend so much time trying to figure out who he is when he's actually not the whole point of this chapter. The whole point of this chapter and the whole point of the book of Hebrews, remember, is the superiority of Jesus Christ. And so the emphasis is not on Melchizedek, although we'll meet him today, The emphasis is on the ministry, the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. And I know it's a little difficult for us here in the 21st century, uh, sitting in a warm church, enjoying the new covenant, understanding the fulfillment of prophecy. 330 prophecies were fulfilled by Jesus Christ in his first coming. And we have embraced him as our savior and we follow him as our Lord. It's a little hard for us sitting in here in the 21st century to connect with the audience that received Hebrews, a first century group of Jewish believers who came out of Judaism, which was God's will for their life. God's will for their life was to embrace Messiah. The whole point of Judaism was to bring about Messiah. It was, as we'll learn, the the law was our tutor. It was our teacher pointing us until faith came. And then once faith came, now our relationship is not with the law, but with the Lord. And so I appreciate and I can understand how bridging the gap between the audience of Hebrews can sometimes be difficult. Chapter 7 is a little bit difficult, but I know that as we go through it, you'll begin to grasp the essence of what's being taught here to them and by application to us. So let's pick up in verse 19 of chapter 6, because it's a bridge. Remember, in the original language of the New Testament, Greek, There was no chapter breaks or verse numbers. Those were added a few hundred years ago to help us. And they do help, don't they? You know, we we were able to say, turn to this chapter, to this verse. But those that received this letter didn't have any chapter breaks to it. They just read straight through. Not even any punctuation, periods or commas. It just read straight through. And so let's pick up because these are connected 
this chapter break is a little unfortunate, but pick up in verse 19 where it says, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, by which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, which means the king of peace. Melchizedek, verse 3, is without father and without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made to be like the Son of God, he remains a priest continually. Verse 4. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed those who are of the sons of Levi, who received the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, verse 9, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Simple enough, right? Here's the point that is being made. The point that's being made as you're reading through this is that Jesus Christ is a better high priest. Remember the backdrop. We've been seeing this in the last couple of studies that Jesus is greater than Abraham. He's greater than the old human priesthood. He's greater than the old covenant. The author, Paul, I believe, is making a case of the superiority of Jesus Christ to a group of people that highly valued the law, highly valued the old covenant, and highly valued Abraham. They actually believed, there was, a, there was a stream of teaching during that day that they believed Abraham was a perfect sinless man. And we know that's not the case. And so piece by piece now, Paul is saying, look, look at the order of Jesus Christ. How coming through the order of Melchizedek and not Aaron and Levi. Now understand, when this was written, the temple's still there. And the process of religion is still taking place. So the incense, the priesthood, the sacrifices, you know, the, the worship of the temple was very demonstrative. It was attractive to the eyes. It was attractive to the nose. So they left the formalism of religion and now are living by faith in Jesus Christ. And they're being tempted. They're being tempted to leave the simplicity of Jesus Christ and go back to the formalism of religion. We can't forget that for a person to embrace Jesus Christ in the first century, for a Jewish person to embrace Jesus Christ in the first century meant that they literally lost everything. And you can't, you can't overemphasize that. They lost the formalism and the comfort of a religious experience. They lost their family because their family would write them off and accuse them of being a part of a cult. They would write them off and say, You're, you are no longer a part of this family because you've turned your back on God which in reality they didn't. They stepped into the fulfillment of what God promised. And 
what Paul's trying to do is saying, if you go backwards, you're leaving the best. Jesus Christ fulfills it all. And he uses this man, mystery of a man, by the name of Melchizedek. Now, that's probably not his name. It's probably a title. It's not like Mr. Melchizedek. It's king of peace or king of righteousness. He is the king of Jerusalem. And while he's introduced, most people in chapter 7 spend all of their time trying to figure out who he is. And the commentators and the teachers have really, it's narrowed down to two options. Number one, many people believe that Melchizedek was just a man and a king of an ancient city that met Abraham in Genesis chapter 14, as we'll get. He was a man. And he's a mysterious man because we don't know his mom or his dad. We don't have his genealogy, which, remember, would be very important to the Jewish person. The other viewpoint is that Melchizedek is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. And you know there's compelling evidence on both sides. And so you might be curious. You go, Ed, well, who is he? Which one? And my answer to you is, I don't know. There's compelling evidence on either side. But my answer also would continue, it doesn't matter. Because the Bible is not about Melchizedek. The Bible is about Jesus Christ. And we know who he is. And now Melchizedek plays a very important role in the life of Jesus Christ because of Jesus Christ's priesthood. So here's the, here's the issue. If you were a first century Jewish believer in Jesus Christ, your family would come to you with criticisms. They would come to you with doubts. And one of the things they would say is, how can Jesus Christ be a high priest when he is not from the line of Aaron or Levi? He actually came from Judah. You know, the priesthood would come through the family of Levi, but Jesus didn't come through the family of Levi. So how is it possible that he'd be a high priest? Chapter 7 answers that. He's not a high priest according to the human line of Levi. He's a high priest according to a new order that God established through Melchizedek. So let's go back to Genesis 14 and let's fill in some of the blanks here with this time that Abraham is met by Melchizedek. Those of you that remember in Genesis 14, Abraham had to go save and rescue his nephew Lot from the evils of Sodom. And he went and fought a battle. And it says in verse 17 now of Genesis chapter 14, it says, And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheba, that is, the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Cheder Laomer and the kings who were with him. Then Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and he was, so now we learn a little bit of Melchizedek, he was a priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tenth of all. So that's where we're introduced to Melchizedek. He's actually mentioned three times. He's mentioned in Genesis chapter 14. He's also mentioned about a thousand years later in Psalm 110, as we'll get to there. And then another thousand or so years later in Hebrews. And so Melchizedek is this king that meets Abraham and blesses him after Abraham rescues Lot. And here's the key about Genesis 14 you need to understand. All of Genesis 14 happened before the Mosaic law. Abraham doesn't know anything about Moses. 
anything about Mount Sinai. Abraham knows nothing of the Ten Commandments that are going to be given or the laying out of what's going to be given in Deuteronomy, Leviticus, the Mosaic Law, the law that institutes the worship in the temple. So Melchizedek, he comes and predates the law. This is all happening before the Mosaic Law. The reason that's important is because the Jewish people are rooted in the Mosaic Law. It is the guide for their life. And here... Melchizedek comes, he's a better priest, he's a better king, he is the greater of Abraham, and also notice he receives tithes. Now tithing and finances within a church, within a body of believers is unfortunately great controversy. Many will say, you know, we don't need to tithe anymore unto God because it was a part of the law and the law has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So we can give if we want to give or not give if we don't want to give. But for those of you that might hold that view, understand something. The tithe predated the law. The idea of generously giving of what God has given to us predates the law. It's actually part of the relationship that a person has with God. And so to say, well, I don't need to tithe, and tithing, literally, that word speaks of 10%. But tithing predated the law. By the time you got to the Mosaic law, the tithe or the giving of, of offerings and your giving of your tithe and offerings to the Lord was actually far greater than 10%. If you add up the things that, that a Jewish person under the law was required to give, it's probably in the 30 to 35% of what they brought in, both of finances and, and the grain and things of their, of their crops. And so I think it's important for us just to remember before we move on that giving is an important part of the Christian's life. If there's anyone on the earth that should be known as generous people, it would be followers of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus, of course, gave us the model of generosity by giving himself. And so for, if you happen to have that viewpoint, well, you know, I don't tithe, I don't have to give because that's part of the law. You don't have a full scope of what the Bible teaches about giving. And you can look at the New Testament, the New Testament, so you got the tithe here, 10% with Abraham giving to Melchizedek, and then you walk into the Mosaic Law, which it kind of adds up to 30, 35%. Do you know the mandate of giving in the New Covenant is actually even greater? The Bible says to give yourself a living sacrifice. And so that generosity is flowing. And one thing you've learned, some of you that have give, you know this to be true. You just are unable to outgive God. And the only way to, to have God fill your hands is for them to be empty as you give. Second Corinthians chapter 8 is a great chapter for that. Uh, in verse uh, 7, it says, the summary of what he says, he, Paul writes to the church in the new covenant. He says, but as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and even in your love for us, he says, abound in this grace. Giving is called a grace. He says, abound in giving too. Don't let it be said of your life that you held back when you had the means to give generously. So he receives tithes from Abraham before the law. And there's a point being made here. So it's before the law, he's given tithes. Melchizedek is a priest before Levi, before Aaron, before Moses. And that's very important to the point that's being made. He says now, he puts the superiority of Melchizedek over Levi in verse 9 as the priesthood through Levi, he says he also received tithes, like he was inside the loins of Abraham, like potentially Levi's going to come from Abraham in the future. So even the human priesthood was there at that time, and Abraham represented them. So keep that in mind. Therefore, 
If perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, of necessity there's also a change of the law, which in any good Jewish person would gasp at this statement. You see, God is unchanging, but his law changed. That's the ever-increasing revelation of God to himself, that the law, as you guys have learned before, I've taught this, has a definite beginning and a definite end, and it had a purpose, and we'll see that in a moment, but this would have been a gasp from them. And I love what Paul does, because many times as a pastor, as a teacher, you guys that are teachers, even as parents you do this, where you're anticipating as you're trying to instruct someone of all the questions that come up in their mind, so you can just answer their questions before they ask it. That's what Paul's doing here. He's like, wait a minute, what do we need Melchizedek for? We have the law. What do we need a new order for? God has given to us his law, and his law is perfect. It was given to us in its perfection. And yet, notice... Verse 13, for he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. Melchizedek never offered a sacrifice in the temple. Never. It didn't exist. He served before the temple. He served before the tabernacle. Notice verse 14. It's evident, now speaking of Jesus, that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning the priesthood. For it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment but according to the power of an endless life. Verse 17. For he who testifies you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now if your Bible doesn't already have it, write down next to this Psalm 110. This is a fulfillment of the prophecy in Psalm 110 that we'll turn to in a minute. Verse 18. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. And now this is a real key. Underline this, circle this, verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Perfection does not come, or first let's state in the past. Perfection did not come through the law and you could say today, perfection does not come through the law. No one is made perfect by the law. And so for those listening, tempted to go backwards, he's explaining to them this superior priesthood that supersedes and replaces the law. And you know, this desire to leave Jesus and a faith relationship with Jesus Christ, just being frustrated and not feeling like, you know, the pressure of your family or the pressure, outside pressures want you to leave the things of the Lord is a common, it's a common experience. It's not just the Hebrews in the first century. It dates back to the heart of man in the Garden of Eden. We have that pattern already in the garden where Adam and Eve, now tainted by sin, chose to run away and hide, at least to attempt to. They no longer felt, I believe, that they could enjoy re relationship with God. And so now they recognize their nakedness, the Bible says. They recognize their sinfulness and they feel ashamed and run away from God. This idea of wanting to run away from God has been with us from the very beginning. 
And you notice in our culture, in our society, in our generation, a lot of people are running from God. You can put it this way, a lot of people are running from God and they really aren't making any progress. And they run to a lot of things. Statistics show that alcohol use is skyrocketing in our culture and around the world. Our, I should say not culture, I should say our generation. That drug use and the invention of new drugs to desensitize the pain and the sorrow and the hardship of life is shooting through the roof. Where God promises us a peace that passes all understanding and yet the pressures of life and the worries of life and the anxieties of life just cause people to run and run and run. People have been running away from God forever. And the answer is still the same. What you're seeking to run away from, the problem with running away is always that you take yourself and your problems with you. You find that it only complicates matters, makes things harder. You know, we call running away from God idolatry. And I believe it's important that we're reminded that idolatry is just not little statues. Although it's representative. That was the big deal in the Old Testament, remember? The prophets would say, you guys are making little idols, but they have eyes and can't see. They have ears and they can't hear. They have hands and they can't help you. You're carving little images that look like yourself. And they're helpless. And so we kind of look back on a civilization and a generation that, or even a religion that makes little idols and we're like, yeah, never that. But what are the idols in your life? What are the temptations in your life that have nothing to do with carving out a little statue? But when you think of idolatry, you know, a basic definition of idolatry is simply anything or anyone that replaces God in your life. But let me go a little bit deeper for you. Idolatry is what you run to to give you the sense of peace and comfort that can only come from God. A sense of peace and comfort. Where do you run when you're hurt? Where do you run when you're mad? Where do you run when you're anxious and worried? Where do you run if you run to anything or anyone other than God, that's become an idol in your life. A replacement of the one true God. So unless we kind of point the finger at other generations, go, oh, you know, we don't make little statues. We're not into that. We don't have pictures on our wall that we worship. No, there's all kinds of sophisticated gods now today that you're feeling so overwhelmed that you think drunk being drunk will actually be better than what you're feeling right now. You're so overwhelmed in whatever circumstances that you're facing that you think that smoking that joint or snorting that line or even the progression of heroin and all of that, that's really going to give you the kind of joy and happiness and peace when you know it doesn't last forever and it only makes things worse. I think back in my own personal experience, every major stupid thing I did, major huge things, I was under the influence of something. I mean, I made a lot of mistakes not being in, under the influence of drugs or alcohol for sure, but it only got worse, not better. And so think of that as a believer in Jesus Christ, a born-again man, a born-again woman that says, God, you are not my sufficiency. I don't trust you right now. I can't take this anymore. I don't want to feel this anymore. And you run away. Some frank and candid reflections there from Pastor Ed Taylor about past decisions and concluding with a challenge. You'll want to come back tomorrow on Abounding Grace for some practical instruction to help meet that challenge and more.
Before we part ways, just a few things we want to tell you about. If you'd like to hear today's message again, log on to AboundingGraceRadio.com. Again, we're on the web at AboundingGraceRadio.com. You can also download our free app and access our teachings that way. Search for Ed Taylor or Calvary Church. See if this sounds familiar. You come across an atheist or non-believer that has some questions about Christianity or the Bible. It's about that time you scratch your head in confusion and don't know what to say. Well, allow Ron Rhodes to help in a book called Five-Minute Apologetics for Today. The book is short, giving you one-page answers to common questions and objections. Request a copy today when you support Abounding Grace with a gift of $25 or more. You might think of it as a way of saying thank you. You can do that by calling 877-30-GRACE. Again, our number, 877-30-GRACE. You may not realize this, but we are listener-supported, and each dollar that's sent is an investment in God's work and responsibly used. You'll be helping people all across the nation grow in their relationship with the Lord and, in some cases, come to Christ. You can make a donation online at AboundingGraceRadio.com. Don't miss our next study in Hebrews. It's going to be a good one. That's right here on Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. Abounding Grace is brought to you by Calvary Church, Colorado, here in Aurora.